You know, I think about us, the three of us, what we could be. I think about it all the time. Please, it's terrible. No, it's not. I know June. She's my friend. I care about her. How's your day going? You look pretty. Thanks. I wore it just for you. Her father's a driver named Nick. He helped me to survive. Yes, you can, because I can't lose you. I'm not gonna let anything happen to you. What about you? Your girlfriend is a badass. Welcome to Above the Garage, a Nick and June The Handmaid's Tale podcast. Hi, friends. Today we have a special bonus episode for you guys featuring a guest speaker named Jess Pinsa. Like us, Jess is a huge Handmaid's Tale fan and describes herself as an academic, among other things. She sent us a fascinating paper she had written a few weeks back analyzing a lot of the symbolism in The Handmaid's Tale, especially involving our favorite couple, Nick and June. It was so comprehensive that we invited her on the show to discuss it. When she got here, though, she had so many interesting ideas to share that it's a little less like our typical discussion format and more a fascinating hour of her thoughts on a lot of different aspects of the show. Of course, no, her opinions are her own and not necessarily that of Above the Garage, but we hope you enjoy. And don't forget to join us next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for our new Shining Girls special episodes. Our Handmaid's Tale analysis will resume the following week. So welcome, Jess. Hi, how are you? We are good. How are you? Good, yeah. I'm talking to you from Melbourne. Oh, Uh, Melbourne. My husband studied there for some reason. Uh, Kimberly, um, our social media specialist, is from Perth, and I was thinking you were from Sydney. So Melbourne is very exciting. Dave talks about it all the time, and I know how to say it correctly. So I I wish I'd known. I would have introduced you from Melbourne. We get a lot of (laughs) Melbourne. Right. (laughs) So I thought I'd talk a little bit about characterization and uh, plot structure and then uh, just something about symbolism in the show here. So I'll start off uh, a little bit about uh, characterization. So sounds amazing. Uh, I've kind of always loved characters who aren't your straight up good or bad. I think it's a bit more accurate to the human condition for a character to kind of struggle with their decisions. Definitely. Uh, Audiences are somewhat conditioned to barrack for the good guy and dislike the villain. So characters that show real dichotomy can uh, come across as unlikable in some (laughs) respects. Mm -hmm. They're fallible, but this also makes them human. So some of the greatest characters in cinema, whilst they weren't villains, they weren't exactly angels either. Uh, And Lawrence and Nick are both (laughs) great examples of this. Perfect. And it's been really interesting to watch these two, uh, let's say, good men of Gilead Mm -hmm. (laughs) plotting together. And I really hope that we get to see more of this because their dynamic is just fantastic. Us too. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the essence of the character of Nick because I'm a huge sucker for noir cinema and literature. So uh, movies like The Maltese Falcon and Casablanca and in the last half of this century, ones that we might remember a bit more like Blade Runner, Drive, LA Confidential. Mm -hmm. So your protagonist here... They're not villains, but they're not angels either. Nick Blaine is one of your classic noir anti-heroes who's in search of redemption. And in classic narratives, this redemption is usually sought through an act of self-sacrifice, which may involve giving up something really precious to them for the greater good. Mm-hmm. It can also come by the act of earning forgiveness from those they've wronged and being rewarded in some respect. So for Nick, it's a bit of both. Now, there's a good reason why we love Nick and Jane. Mm -hmm. They've been modelled around some of the most potent, iconic couples in the history of literature and cinema. 
So images of the two of them are almost portrait-like in nature. And what I mean by that is that every shot that they've got them in, you'll see things like glowing light, sweeping planes, those sorts of things. Uh, so the images of them standing in the snow, they're very reminiscent of films like Casablanca and Dr. Zhivago. Now, Nick Blaine was named after Rick Blaine in Casablanca, and it's not a mistake. Rick Blaine was a shady figure who eventually sends Elsa, the love of his life, back home with her husband <laughs> while he must stay and sacrifice himself to a greater cause. Now, in the movie... The character of Rick Blaine inhabits what we can refer to as the purgatorial realm of Casablanca. He's trapped between two worlds. And like Rick Blaine, Nick constantly walks between two worlds, existing in no man's land. <laughs> so we see him drag Fred into no man's land mm -hmm. and he's tormented by the love of a woman he can never have. Casablanca is now 80 years old and it's still hailed as one of the greatest love stories ever told. But it's more than this. In its heart, it's a cautionary tale about the dangers of fascism. It tells the story of refugees trapped in Casablanca, waiting sometimes for years on end for their passage to freedom. For Ilsa, Rick is the one who finally provides the means for her escape, despite the fact that it costs him his heart. Everything about Nick Blaine is understated to underline the fact that there are unseen layers to this character, and that's what makes him so fascinating. He's often backlit to show a dark, ambiguous silhouette. The most obvious example being that shot of him in the doorway when he comes to capture June in season four. There's also classic noir shots of dark strip blinds cast across his face in the Waterford kitchen. And his apartment also has that similar strip blinding. His apartment is always dimly lit and he's regularly shown lurking in dark doorways speaking in hushed tones, and he never says more than he has to. Like any true noir character, he's generally cloaked in black and he's often seen wearing a long coat with a flipped-up collar. So you remember that you see those kinds of flipped-up collars on Humphrey Bogart and any <laughs> of those classic noir characters. Mm -hmm. They're very cool. <laughs> Uh, because his character is ambiguous and he's done something terrible, as we're told, mm -hmm. there's this tendency to question his loyalties no matter what he does to better himself. But just before all the haters run out there and get their T-shirts <laughs> printed, you save your money. Because Nick betraying Jane is completely contrary to the motives of this character. Ultimately, you need to remember that although you're dealing with a character that's conflicted, he's ultimately driven by a desire for redemption and a family mm -hmm. which hinges on the love of this woman. So you always have to remember that Nick Blaine, from the very beginning, he just wanted a family. Yeah. And he looked for a family everywhere. And yeah. that's why he was able to be drawn in by this group. You're going to make me cry. One of the ways that you can tell where Nick's allegiance lies is in his positioning. He's usually shown placed to June's right-hand side, and this references the right hand of God, the position that Jesus occupied, so basically the place of the highest honour and favour in God's eyes. There's a lot of symbolism attached to the right and the left hands, but given the sheer volume of religious iconography that appears okay. in this show, I'm just going to go with the most basic interpretation. <laughs> so examples include the first ceremony where she's kneeling on the floor, he enters and stands to her right side, standing in the hall, brushing their hands. 
in the pavilion when Nick stands in for Fred just for the shot and we all had a bit of a giggle here Mm -hmm. and even when he captured her at the start of season four he knelt down and brushed her right shoulder now speaking of the hand brushing we can read this as a secret form of messaging between the two so Nick and June have been described as star-crossed lovers and their hand touching can be seen as a reference to Shakespeare's the saints have hands that pilgrims hands do touch and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss from Romeo and Juliet. Now this passage actually talks about how the touching of hands is equal to a kiss. Now Juliet in the play was only a young teenager so holding hands was equal to a kiss for her. Mm. The first time we see them brush hands, their fingers intertwine and caress one another. And it's a prelude to the kiss that they share moments later. You know, that face melting kiss that they have in the hall. (laughs) Yes. Um, It's hard to forget. So this hand touching is also used as a way to give and receive strength from one another. The characters have very little dialogue with one another, resorting instead to hand and forehead touches. And their forehead touches are a way to communicate silently, reading each other's thoughts. So that supersedes the need for dialogue. When they're together, Nick and June are accompanied by symbols of love, devotion, fertility, eternal union, dreams and faith. So things like glowing light, lush fields, crosses and dreamy illusions to a better life. In season four, Nick and June meet at the Magdalena School and images of Jesus and Mary Magdalena are shown throughout. Inside the school, June wheels Nicole's stroller in and parks it directly beneath a picture of Mary and Jesus. In the kitchen, after Holly is born, Nick and June stand framed in a glowing light with a tree in the background symbolising the family tree they've begun. All of these images are included to reinforce the idea that it's a sort of holy, everlasting union. In season one and two, multiple shots featuring Nick and June include church-like eave structures. You see these eave-like structures inside his apartment, And as she walks down the hall to visit him in his apartment the first night there together. Now, we've seen Nick and June twice in marriage ceremony-like scenarios. Once when she was forced to marry him and watch Marry Eden. Mm -hmm. And then again in the bridge scene during the crossing, Mm -hmm. a scene which was drowning in crosses, reaffirming this message of commitment. So we really have to thank Eric Tuckman for writing that scene at the Magdalena School. It was a beautiful commentary on how war rips families apart. And honestly, if you weren't in tears by the end of it, you don't have a soul. (laughs) Without June, Nick is accompanied mostly by symbols of power, duty and darkness, dark suits, looming camera angles, dark hallways and lurking guards. Like June, Nick seems to have the extraordinary survival skills of a cockroach. So we've seen the demise of a multitude of commanders while Nick Blaine seems somewhat unscathed. Even Lawrence was due to be executed until Nick manoeuvred to have him released. So he's adaptable, elusive and he's becoming more powerful by the minute in season four in particular it's sought to impress the idea that nick's becoming more powerful Uh, he's shown voting amongst the board of commanders commanding a group of snipers with a wave of his fingers and leading what i can only describe as a posse of guards just on that last one Not every guy gets a gothic version of Daft Punk to follow them around doing their bidding, but apparently Nick Blaine does. So extra points for that because it's very cool to watch. Anyone would, it would be Nick Blaine. (laughs) Now, this idea of Nick Blaine's growing power just culminates in him being instrumental in the death of his previous master. 
season four is very reflective and full circle, so to speak, in its narrative. And in it, we see that Nick is finally issued a woman. He's given a place at the table. He's given a vote that matters. And he is finally given all this power to actually do something about Gilead. But he's being asked to give up the most precious thing in the world to him for it. So it's not reward we're seeing, it's sacrificed. The fact that he uses his power to benefit June indicates that they may be pooling their resources in the future. This idea seems reinforced by the fact that Nick has friendlies uh, in Gilead that can assist them. Now, you have to remember that in any revenge scenario, like we saw at the end of season four, for it to feel right, it needs to feel measured, to feel justified. But even though it did, because it steps out of our conventional ideals of justice, it generally comes with a price. It leaves us with the question, what price will June and her handmaids pay for Fred's death? What price will Nick pay? Nick's character has spent four seasons seeking redemption and love through this woman. And I can only hope she's able to reach out and pry him loose from the claws of Gilead in time. Now, when we see Nick, he's the most engaging when his mask slips. These small glimpses of his underlying humanity appear to completely transform him from a stoic, ambiguous presence into a deep and loving individual. It's like we get to peek behind that curtain for a second. That mask slipping down is something that's only triggered by June and Holly. And it's also when he comes closest to being discovered. So we saw it when they got him to bomb Chicago and because of it, Lawrence was able to clock that connection between Nick and June. Now, when Nick talks about holding his daughter, we see that raw tenderness and vulnerability. When you have a character that spends 95% of their time trying to not emote lest they end up dead, the transition to someone who suddenly does can feel really unnatural. Mingella deserves a lot of praise for always making these changes feel like a completely natural part of his character transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nick Blaine is one of the rare characters who addresses the camera directly. So this type of shot is referred to as subjective camera angle that's used to indicate transparency, honesty, and sincerity. The only other characters that I'm aware of who've done this include Luke and June. So as far as I know, he's the only other honest character on screen. That's something that I wanted to bring up. Um, so the New Testament, as we know, uh, it's a bit more steeped in things like unconditional love and forgiveness. It's the one that you see Corinthians come from. Other characters from Gilead quote verse almost exclusively from the Old Testament, reminding us that Nick is one of the few good men in Gilead mm -hmm. and calling to mind June's line, if you want to know what they believe in, remember they sold way more copies of the Old Testament than the new. Yeah. So in the van, Nick looks directly into the camera pleads to let him help her and then quotes that part of the Bible verse, the full armour of God. Uh, now that passage is about using faith as protection in the face of the highest of spiritual evils. And if you've got the full quote there, you can, you can run through it now. I do have that full quote, thanks to you and your paper you sent us. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the he heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, 
Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. You can you can analyze. Yeah. Uh, look, personally, I love the visuals in this passage. It just really paints a picture of a warrior dressing for war. And I think that that's what's intended by this passage, you know. I've watched just that like 30 seconds a million times, just him staring into the camera like that and reading that to her and reading the whole pa- passage was so much more moving. So I appreciate you sending that. And like I said, it's it's a passage about using faith as a protection in the face of the highest of spiritual evils. And I think that possibly the most important line in there is for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Yeah, it couldn't be more perfect. <laughs> now in season four, we really see this reinforcement of June as a holy figure. And the final scenes with Nick and June in season four, June walks out of the wood and light illuminates her from the back as Nick looks up at her with this adoration and awe. And he quotes Galatians as he gazes at her. Do not be deceived. God is not to be mocked. Uh, now, June's now reached the level of some form of deity and his purpose is just to love and serve her. So there's there've been numerous times throughout the seasons where June's been depicted as a deity and Nick's, uh, Nick's been alluded to as Jesus. The most powerful reference being the one that we saw uh, at the Magdalena School. Uh, this shot of her backlit is reminiscent, of course, of Nick standing in the doorway when we first see him at the start of season four when he comes to capture her. Uh, there are several moments throughout the season like this where June appears as a reflection of Nick. Um, the, the one that I can think of the most is uh, at the beginning of Progress when she's sitting across from the table And that's pretty much a direct reflection of their exchange on the bridge in the crossing, almost word for word. Uh, Now that image of Nick walking through the dark woods in no man's land, delivering his previous master to June for some bloody justice (laughs) has got to be one of the most powerful I've seen of him yet. I'm really hoping for more of him acting as her dark agent in Gilead because <laughs> that's the best way that I can describe that. And personally, I think it would just be criminal to waste the kind of chemistry we've seen from Max and Lizzie so far. Yeah, um, I have to. I have to think that everybody realizes that you don't see that on television very often. So no, you don't. No. Um, I know there are people out there that are screaming for an episode about the origin of Nick Blaine and asking why they won't show more about his backstory, but Mm. I very much doubt that Miller will be telling anything about him beyond what we absolutely need to know (laughs) because he is one of those dark, mysterious, noir, noir characters. Yeah. Um, The appeal of mysterious characters like this is that they cause audiences to think more deeply about them and be less inclined to judge on face value. Now, the quote from Galatians that he recites, for whatever one sows, so shall he reap, speaks of the punishment and reward that one may expect in return for one's deeds. So what does this tell us about Nick? and what he can expect from his deeds, his previous deeds. What's the relevance of this passage and his role in Fred's death? I personally can't wait until he sheds his Gilead shackles and goes underground, but I think it's going to take him being discovered for that to happen. And as we've seen, he's pretty cunning. So June and Luke, the loss of a child also contributes significantly to the rate of divorce as as does the presence of PTSD. And then there's the little matter of beating Fred to death in the woods. (laughs) So 
One thing that showrunners and writers have been careful to avoid until now is that unrealistic fairy tale scenario. So I really hope that they haven't decided to put her back into what would always realistically be a damaged marriage for the sake of completion of a narrative. So what I mean by completion of a narrative is that traditional returning home narrative. In a lot of cases, the first guy on screen with a female character is generally her end game. It gives the audience a sense of completion. For June, that'd be Luke. They're seen fleeing in a car unsuccessfully. All three of them are separated by Gilead guards. It embeds the idea from the first frame that June has lost everything and returning it may give the audience a sense that she finally got it all back. Now, Miller's previously spoken about bookending the series, and this may be what he's referring to, finally returning what was lost. But personally, I'm not comforted by that scenario. I feel like the overriding message of this show is that Gilead steals and breaks things that can never be repaired. So a completionism narrative risks feeling escapist, particularly when the relationships that they're built from wouldn't be realistically viable anymore. So Luke's character is a homemaker. He's not a fighter or a secret agent. The name Bangkol actually means to make or build a home. This sort of thing brings me to the whole love triangle thing that's been haunting this show for quite some time now. Four seasons, thank you. Mm -hmm. When you build a love triangle, you really want both of the suitors to have different qualities. So they represent different choices that your protagonist makes about her life. So, for example, who she was as opposed to who she is now. So Luke versus Nick. You also want to have the protagonist consciously choose who they're going to be with. You can't have circumstance reach up and grab that choice from them at the last minute. It leaves the audience feeling somewhat cheated. Now, in season four... Gilead cheated June and the audience out of her choice. It was pretty clear that she wanted to be with Nick, but because of Gilead, we've been left with Luke by default, and it really wasn't her choice. Now, while we all enjoyed Casablanca, the idea of a woman selecting a man as a consolation prize is not one that's, shall we say, very now. For me, the phrase, try to be happy, cut really deeply because it left me thinking not only how unfair it was to everyone involved, including poor Luke, but it also made me think about how outdated that idea was, particularly for a woman that fiercely independent. Now, I really hope that showrunners haven't decided to reshape Luke to fit the choice that she inevitably must make for herself. Otherwise, the idea that your protagonist was ever presented with a choice becomes somewhat deceptive. It also raises that question about someone changing themselves for another person. Personally, I don't dislike Luke. He's a pretty good guy. And honestly, I think he deserves better. But the woman he loves is gone. And the fact is he did not listen when she told him to move on because she loves someone else. Mm-hmm. And when we look at romantic narratives, one of the elements that we generally see is that the protagonist and their love interest try to return to their normal lives, but they find them miserable without each other. Try to be happy, Nick says. But it's clear they're both utterly miserable. I wonder, would Miller really leave Nick and Joan in this tragic scenario? Are we really to be really to be left to mourn these two like Rick and Ilsa? I really wonder after all this heartbreak and pain, are they honestly to be denied their dream as well? Because while I understand the reference to the tragedy of war, after all this trauma and punishment, after all this grasping for redemption and hope, it does seem needlessly cruel to deny it. I agree. Yeah. No. <laughs> that would be horrible. I think we've, we've seen how the story of these characters has been built up for these four seasons. 
perfectly said by you and um, that whole traditional, I mean, they've strived to stay away from, from tradition. And I think that in the flashbacks, at least for me, the way that I see it, I think it's been very clear that there's just something, not something wrong, but June kind of wanted to fit into this narrative that went against, you know, what her mother told her. And she had doubts, especially with what happened with Luke and, and his ex-wife. And all of that has been shown through flashbacks. And then, you know, she gets to meet this love in Gilead in this character's neck, which is so different from Luke, like you were saying, or two, you know, contrast completely separate. So I would be very, very frustrated if they give us this amazing female character only for her to go back to, to you know, the tradition that you were talking about. This would bring up, like, would kind of like shift too far off for me. I guess my concern is that instead of uh, having her choose between, um, Luke represents home, peace, those sorts of things. Nick represents something very different. He represents her warrior self, battle, uh, that type of choice moving forward. Um, so they do this in, in your narrative of, of a love triangle. This is the way that it's, it's set up. So there are clear definitive choices here. I guess my concern is that they are going to try and uh, fit Luke into uh, a narrative that is more, okay, ascribed to Nick. So mm-hmm. instead of, uh, you know, June actually having this choice, it's all quite deceptive. And it doesn't fit with the story that's been told for the past five years, four seasons. Yes, so. yeah. that's correct. It can leave an audience feeling very frustrated. It's sort of like, well, yeah. it wasn't, you know, there, there was no uh, actual true, true choice in the first place. Yeah, and there's no lead up to this change. Like basically for me, like the way that I see them, it's just Luke is just kind of like the love that you're told that you should have and 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 make us like the love that you deserve. That's that's the way that I've interpreted those two narratives. So I'm just curious what they're gonna do in season five. Mm. Uh like you said, Jess though, like I, I would like to see Luke find somebody like more appropriate for him also. Mm-hmm. I, at this point in time, like June's character is not remotely compatible with him i kind of feel bad for him to be honest yeah of course. yeah i do too i'm not heartless i feel terrible for luke this is uh you know this is someone who who can't really relate because they haven't been exposed to that trauma so they're not really going to ever be able to understand that right. um Moira wants to move on because I think it, it's too painful to, for her to to really look at look at that yeah look at that pain mm-hmm. directly mm-hmm. yeah so just in terms of the whole intimacy thing with uh, both of these men uh, so the the encounters that we see with Nick, they're quite passionate. They depict a very mutual sexual pleasure. They contain uh, very swapping and sharing of power dynamics. So, in both cases of their first real mutual sexual encounter, and in the Boston Globe, they begin with an unspoken permission from June. I love that. Both encounters feature virtually no dialogue, but Mm. rather a silent communication for requests of power trading. Mm -hmm. So it's a direct reflection of their ability to communicate both physically and mentally without Mm. words. Both encounters are precluded by no dialogue about it, uh, indicating their unspoken mutual desire. In comparison, June's initial encounter with Luke is precluded with a long conversation about how and when they would theoretically meet up to have sex. She discusses that she'd need time to prepare, primp, preen, purchase lingerie. Uh, and I mean, that kind of brings up the whole idea of this manicuring for sex which is traditionally seen as a way for women to make themselves more desirable. 
And for me, it, it sort of recalled that whole thing about being washed and brushed like a prize pig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, during June and Nick's encounter at the Boston Globe, June's really grubby. She's unshowered. She's wearing that baggy, <laughs> dirty clothes. She's just cut her ear tag out. Yeah, yeah. She's, <laughs> she's all bloody. And then sex is really raw. It's yeah. primal. It's primal. In a way. That's the best word to describe it, I think. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, I I think that, you know, when you see Nick and June, their first sexual encounter, it's also it's bathed in this kind of glowing golden light accompanied by these images and sounds of female pleasure and reclaimed power. And they show naked. Uh, And Nick rises up to keep his body close to hers Mm -hmm. and she sits up and holds him to her. Now, June and Luke, their first sexual encounter, it appears a bit awkward and tentative and they glance around the room and they look for distractions and he verbally asks her for permission and they lie on the bed and both of them are clothed as they start to have sex and she asks for permission to be on top. (laughs) And the closeness of their body in this scene is really determined by how closely June places her body to Luke. Um, So there's definitely a real difference in in how they intimately relate to each other, I noticed. It looks like Nick is worshipping June in the Mm -hmm. first sex scene also to me. Well, like I said to you, there are all these kind of uh, references to June being a deity and, uh, you know, that positioning of Nick to her right side, him him actually serving her. In the amazing document that you sent us, you said the nature of Nick Blaine's relationship with June changes from season one to season four, from that of a doting observer to fierce protector to ardent worshipper. And I think that's so fitting for the the course of their tra- trajectory. Yeah, look, there are so many symbols that I guess start from the beginning that she is in some way, mm. um, w- once she takes that first step, she is in a way a bit of a, a deity. She takes on that that presence of a deity. I'll, I'll just run through a little bit of uh, the symbolism that I've seen throughout the uh, series. So the themes for season one and two seem to be things like family and springtime and new growth, new love and fertility, of course, because they're conceiving Holly and she's giving birth to Holly. She's living in the Waterford home. Um, So start with uh, bridges. So there's quite a few bridges in uh, the series Um, Now, bridges represent things like transition, change, and the meeting of two worlds. In season four, The Crossing, uh, Nick stands on an aged bridge. June walks towards him like a bride. And it's green and lush and the birds are singing and the sound of babbling streams can be heard. Panning out, the camera shows the bridge's church-like structure as she walks slowly to meet him. When the camera swirls around as the couple kiss, crosses appear around them, symbolising a holy, eternal love and devotion and the protection of it against evil forces. Contrasted against this in season three is the image of Luke alone, cold, standing on a freezing snowy bridge, listening to June tell him that she loves another man and to move on. A couple walks past him. The freezing snow in this scene symbolises cold isolation. The bright, cheery music is interrupted by June's message, indicating a shattering of his dreams with harsh reality. In episode 10 of season four, Chuello brings Fred to the border halfway across a cold iron bridge to trade him for female prisoners. Visually, the bridge itself symbolises the brutality of Gilead justice. Now, we only really hear birdsong a little bit in this series, but it's, uh, we do hear it uh, when it represents joy and a new dawn, like new beginning, realisation, change, 
Um, as you mentioned before, uh, there's a lot of water in uh, one of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Now, water represents cleansing, peace, life, baptis- and baptisms. And uh, it features in several episodes associated with Nick and June. So things like rushing rivers, melting ice, bathtubs full. And when Fred makes us sick with his comment, we see her spit in the sink and wash it away. Immediately, Nick appears, indicating he's a cleansing and healing presence. When he brings her the ice for her wound and cups it in her hand, the ice melts between between them, indicating he's a warming presence and that the moment between them is charged with heat. We see the overwhelming presence of water in the episode A Woman's Place, the night after they make love. Water is life. And the large presence of water in this episode symbolizes their success in conception. Mm. At one point, Nick actually brings her water, you know, if you didn't get it. (laughs) It's true. There's so many waters. (laughs) So bathtubs full of water washing away blood symbolize baptism, healing and cleansing. What do bathtubs full of blood symbolize? Just uh, getting to blood now. So blood also symbolizes blood ties that families share. Now, in the episode Seeds, Nick's act of stepping in front of Serena reminds her that unlike her relationship with Fred, Nick and June are not only in love, but they're now bound by blood. Mm. Serena then attempts to break these bonds by inserting Eden into Nick's life and the possibility of a new family. We see June bathing in dark blood, her head barely above the waterline, symbolising drowning in her lack of hope or care for life. Both the woman's place and seas reinforce the idea that Nick is indeed the father of Holly. So anyone out there wondering if Fred might be the baby daddy, all signs (laughs) point to no. And also, as you might have noticed, that baby doesn't have horns and cloven feet. Um, so we also see quite a bit of fire, particularly at the start of season three. Mm-hmm. Now, fire and ash are used as a symbol of cleansing, death and chaos. Uh, so Serena burns the ceremonial bed, reducing the family home to smoking ash. And we see Serena look at the bottle with no writing on it that she now uses to bathe the finger that was removed for reading. She sacrificed her identity to construct a world for the dream of a family, which now lies shattered. In Atwood's book, she describes Serena as remembering her former and now amputated glory. So cigarettes are generally used as a metaphor for passing time. You'll see this used frequently in cinema. When Nick crushes out a cigarette before he goes to meet June in season three, it symbolizes that his time with her has run out. Uh, The wood that's used throughout the series, wooden trees represent life, the physical and spiritual body union and nourishment. Uh, Wood is a really beautiful metaphor in this series. Wood also represents power and masculinity. In a woman's place, June grasps one of the posts of the ceremonial bed in an attempt to draw some of the commander's power. The commander's office is finished with dark dressed wood panels, while Nick Blaine's apartment is finished in light raw undressed timber indicating his masculine energy is lighter, younger, simple, and less traditional. In postpartum, the tree illuminated in glowing golden light behind Nick and June in the kitchen window as they first discuss naming Holly represents Nick and June's family tree, which I just think is so beautiful. In contrast, in season four, a sickly tree grows outside Serena's jail cell while waiting to give birth, indicating that her family tree is withering. In fact, it's dead. Um, (laughs) 
Now, windows and glass walls symbolise exits, opportunities, freedom, barriers, clarity, longing and compromise disguise. In season one, Nick looks up at June's window, symbolising his compromise disguise and his longing for her. Each time this happens, they meet each other's gaze, symbolising their mutual desire for one another. And it does recall the whole Romeo and Juliet balcony scene that uh, is so very timeless. True. When in the car, Nick and June always have that clear partition down, except when it was closed up by Serena that time, uh, indicating that they have an openness of communication and an opportunity there. In progress, June looks back at that window at Luke and Moira gathered in the kitchen, watching both of them moving on with life. So in this instance, it symbolises watching from the sidelines and a lost opportunity to to move on there. But I feel like she's happy. I think it's very, I think it's comforting to her to see them together. Yeah, look, you, you know, that's that's just basically what it what it symbolizes, whether or mm-hmm. not she is happy How with that is a totally, right. yeah, it's a totally different thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, in progress, Nick and June sit in the windowsill with Holly bathed in uh, that warm glow. And it symbolizes that dreamy longing for an escape to a better life for their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the clear panel that looks out on that sickly tree for Serena symbolizes that lack of life, opportunity, and growth for her. Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that um, she's going to get her revenge in in one way or another. And I, I think Miller's alluded to that as well. Yeah. Look, I hope so. You know, it'll it'll make it good TV. It'll make it interesting. Yeah. As in, you know, cinema. Uh, always uses doorways a lot. Uh, They generally symbolise things like opportunities, choices, transition, that sort of thing. And in season three, uh, we do see that that whole incident where Nick leans against the doorframe and June reaches around and pulls him back into the room Mm -hmm. and then the lock clicks shut. That indicates her reaching across the divide for him. Uh, the lock clicking shut indicates that sense of finality and protection. And it's in direct contrast to those open doors that she lived with in the other commander's house. You know, there was no privacy, no privacy for them. Um, But in Lawrence's house, there is. Mm -hmm. And as he mentioned, we value privacy (laughs) in this house. So step up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when June first arrives back at the house uh, in progress, she gives the photos of Hannah to Luke uh, and she leans in the doorway watching. In this context, the doorway represents separation and a pathway to an exit. In contrast, Luke and Moira sit on the couch and they look at the photographs seated next to one another and she looks from a distance. Yeah. Uh, finally, just mirrors and reflections, uh, mirrors here, like she doesn't have a mirror in her room. It's considered to be dangerous. Mm. She's not allowed to look at her reflection. She might use it to kill herself. Uh, <laughs> um, they're used to symbolise things like uh, inner reflection, perception and loss. Now, in season one, June and Luke flee. He looks back at her and Hannah in the rearview mirror. And this type of shot is used to symbolise things like leaving something behind. As we see moments later, he's separated from the both of them. Uh, In season one, Jezebel's cut to Nick and June trading glances in the rearview mirror in Jezebel's. And as we see later in the episode, they, for all intents and purposes, break up. (laughs) Those are the breakup episodes. And she taunts him a little bit. A little bit. A little bit (laughs) in the rearview mirror. In the, in the next episodes. So mirrors are used a fair bit throughout the Jezebel's episode when Fred holds that mirror as he watches June apply the makeup. It's, it's used to symbolise things like female objectification and the male gaze. 
So lovely. That's yeah, that's what it's used for there. Yeah. Is there a mirror when Luke is asking June to when Luke is offering for June to go see Nick in exchange for information for Hannah? Is there a mirror? No. No. Okay. No. Um, in the background, there's a square and a circle frame. Now, um, I'm not sure if that's meant to be interpreted as a picture frame or a square. So uh, they each have different meanings. So a picture frame, it's interpreted as, uh, as something like uh, memories, uh, your past, Mm-hmm. Um, something treasured. Fitting. Yeah. Um, if it's a square, it means, you know, the four elements of the earth. So just a bit more grounded. Mm-hmm. And as we know, Luke is a bit, a bit more of a, a grounding source, yeah. you know, because Nick is uh, a bit more about war and, and chaos and uh, battle and, and things yeah. like that. I guess, I guess it makes sense to put something like that uh, in the background. And uh, a circle in that context, um, it could be interpreted as commitment. Uh, you know, uh, it would be seen as uh, the wedding ring that they both share. Um, so they put it directly behind his head. It's not a mistake. <laughs> it's there no to remind us that that's what he symbolizes uh, in, in her life. As we know, Lizzie did direct that yes. episode and um, she loves symbols. She loves symbolism from what I understand. But that exchange is amazing. Like, OT should have gotten an Emmy for that alone. Right. Yeah. There's a couple scenes in that season I think OT deserved an Emmy for. They're difficult. Yeah. Incredible. But I have gone back and watched that exchange between the two of them yeah. uh, several times. What do you see there? It's extremely layered. Yeah. It's very, mm-hmm. very layered. <laughs> that That is not what it appears to be. Five conversations going on at once. Oh, Look, OT has claimed that that dialogue is an honest attempt to communicate and try and get their daughter back. (laughs) Now, I I think that there's a real undercurrent of of real tension in there. There's all the tones that they communicate with, they're they're extremely measured. Yeah. And they're obviously avoiding that subject of their marriage. Right. Their marriage, Nick, a lot of things. They're, they're obviously avoiding that, that whole, uh, I guess, issue of whether or not their marriage is in danger or not. And he's trying to avoid asking about Nick, will he help? Right. Yep. But he needs to ask. He's got to ask. And she answers in a very clear way mm-hmm. yes nick would do anything she, you know it's kind of like if you don't want me to tell you then don't ask yes <laughs> but he has to ask you know and he asked does he ask right after he calls him a commander the big man yes. uh, yeah because i wonder yes. if, i wonder if that challenged her into a further into further honesty and that's why she's very honest with him that's how I saw it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think he would do anything for me and for Nicole. He was implying that he was, you know, part of Gilead. You know, he's a bad one. Right. So I think she kind of didn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be very difficult for someone in that particular situation to try and remain objective. But you can see his voice begins to waver and his yes. eyes start to redden. Impossible. As he's, Impossible. He realises that her feelings are very real. It's one thing to hear it, for her, her to, to tell him over a tape recorder, but then to look her in the eyes and realise that she's saying yes is a totally different thing. 
that's a totally different thing yeah I agree yeah uh and given given the information that she gives him given what she says to him uh it's somewhat of a gamble that that he's asking that he's taking here uh with with his marriage you know he understands that now but it's his daughter so he's willing to to take that gamble it is interesting that he's kind of like I in no way do I think he's trading um Nicole for Hannah but I do think that she is being used as a tool of negotiation so I mean gives you a little bit of an idea of his mentality on that topic and I by I think he loves her very much but just this conversation turns her into a tool of trade I guess and June too you do have to kind of wonder what would you do in that situation would you would you do anything different if it was your daughter would you do anything different yeah I mean I I will tell you that I would but I can never tell you until I'm in that situation. <laughs> I would have had a different conversation, me, because what was underlying in that conversation, like I know obviously his main purpose is Hannah and I, I don't doubt that Luke loves Holly very much like Kate said, but the underlying question in that conversation was he as a man wanted to know what were June's feelings about Nick and he could have like, I mean, it's a different conversation no matter how he has it but it would have been better to just have a normal conversation just ask instead of underlying it it made for great television of course but that's what I would have done different (laughs) yeah it's true yeah I think that uh Holly is used as an excellent narrative uh vehicle in season four true just just amazing so uh, what I mean by that is uh, you see Luke and Moira kind of parent and change her, demonstrating that she's bonded specifically to them. And, uh, you know, June cuddles her, talks about Luke and Moira raising her. Uh, and then that dreamy look that comes across her face when she's talking about Nick as her father. Uh, She's just used as a mechanism to feel closer to Nick and draw comfort from her. Uh, You know, the fact that Nick never actually gets to hold Holly in season four. Uh, May I interject there? Yeah. I have read the scripts for this scene and he is supposed to hold her. So I'm I'm not, I mean, what we see is still what you're saying, but the uh, script that was written, there were some nice things in it, including him holding her. And oh, okay. I, don't, I don't know where that was changed. I don't know if that was a COVID thing. I don't know if that was a choice, but she was supposed, June was supposed to say, Holly, this is your daddy and hand him to her. And he was supposed to say, I missed you so much, oh. which were very sweet. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. I don't know. I have no idea if it's a COVID thing, a baby thing, a choice of a narrative thing or what, but um, that's really interesting. It was written differently. And then she walked, they walked out to the car together and he said, um you better not miss the traffic or something they had their little banter going on cute oh yeah I guess finally uh Atwood spent so much time thinking about what to name Nick and June's baby I heard that was a really big deal uh before she landed on Nicole which is just the masculine derivative of, of Nicholas. Um, when, when I had a look at this, it just means uh, victory of the people or victorious people. So That's a good reason. Yeah. I was a, I was um, a little bitter about the, uh, the flex to change from Holly, but that's a good reason. Yeah, um, it, it, might, it might be relevant that she does have two different names, you know? But uh, that whole thing about it meaning victory of the people or victorious people uh, may really indicate that both characters might play a really vital part in the uh, re-establishment of democracy in Gilead. Oh, I like that idea. Mm. There's, uh, you know, there's a couple of things that kind of twigged in terms of uh, how... 
I guess, influential Nick might be in terms of Mayday, you know, uh, that whole thing, um, that whole exchange, you know, the the eyes maintain tactical control at the border. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it kind of said to me that he's going to know what's going on with his yeah. daughter and June. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's he's going to be keeping an eye on on that whole situation. I like that. Yeah. Uh, and you know Lawrence's thing about uh, I think he's got us over a barrel. It's sort of like, well, uh, I don't think he should really get in his way. <laughs> <laughs> it might be might be a bit dangerous to get in his way on this one. Um, and and for Fred, yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> I, I love though that Nick a lot, you know, not allowed, but Nick, the most he took out of Fred was a pistol whip, but it was June's. He was June's prey, you know. He took Fred to June and delivered her, and he didn't do it himself. He didn't take that choice away from her. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think. Uh, you know, just in terms of season five, it's it's going to be, my guess is that it's going to be about consequence, you know, and to hear things from Miller about it's a June and Serena thing, you know. So mm-hmm. in terms of Fred's death, Serena views it that she's, she's wronged her mm-hmm. by killing Fred. You know, she's taken something away from her, but perhaps a free ticket. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And look, I could go on all day about Serena and what's wrong with her. <laughs> um, that's, um, that woman is just missing some flying monkeys and just has an <laughs> odd hankering for ruby slippers. I don't know what's wrong with her. <laughs> it's just, I don't know either. But um, it was a touch of genius to kind of change her from, uh, you know, an old woman into... Yeah. Uh, this mm-hmm. this uh, actually a beautiful woman exactly and the eight, same age as June and the you know a much better battle between them yep I think that June really represents uh, to Fred um, just this whole idea of fertility and that's what he finds so alluring about her mm. makes sense I'm pretty sure you noticed the painting you know in four nine when. June leaves and and he puts his wedding ring and there's there's a picture behind him, yeah. Um, which is pretty religious. Um, I kind of researched it when when the episode came out and it's uh, from Giotto di Bondone. I don't speak Italian, so I don't know if I pronounced okay. that right. Um, and it's a early Renaissance painting. It's a series of paintings that um are in this arena chapel in Padua. Okay. He did quite a few series of these, but this one's called uh, Noli Metangere, which I think it means do not touch me. And it was interesting to me because it's obviously Mary Magdalene in Christ on Easter morning in front of the open tomb. She attempts to speak to her Lord and to touch him. He refuses with the words, touch me not. Giotto depicts the in-between status of Christ, no longer of this world, but not yet of the next world. Through the wavering posture and the delicate coloring, the contrast with Mary Magdalene and the sleeping soldiers heightens this impression, which obviously I think it's full of symbolism because that, you know, no longer in this world, not yet of the other, people don't know exactly, quote unquote, where Nick lies or where his loyalties lie. And then, you know, obviously Mary Magdalene is wearing a red robe, June in the color red, the handmaids. And uh, the sleeping soldiers, well, obviously, you know, we do know that Nick is a spy on a spy. So he's, you know, sleeping soldiers, like, you know, they don't really see his um, true purpose. So I I thought it was interesting they used that precise out of the many pictures that this man has done uh, in that precise scene. I don't know if you like analyzed it or if you have something that you want to talk about. No, I mean, I didn't uh, analyze that in particular. Uh, I just think that uh, that location was chosen um, as a whole just in terms of the the fact that it had so many references to uh, Mary Magdalene and and Christ. I I think that generally just that shot 
of him standing there under that that picture there uh, is, you know, it's quite looming. It's meant to show that he's quite powerful now, but he's so miserable. Mm-hmm. He's so unhappy in that shot. And then you see him put on that ring and he's watching her go and then you see behind him that that picture and it does depict Mary and Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to show the two of them. It's just, it's lovely that she appears in a in a red robe. Yeah, well, um, you know, after episode 10, we didn't really know. Nobody expected for it to be Nick, I guess. Um, so I kind of, it, it, the picture called my attention because because of, I knew it was Mary Magdalene. And obviously Mary Magdalene has a lot of symbolism yeah. in the Bible. You know, like, you know, she was a fallen woman. They made her a prostitute. But some people say she was, you know, Christ's wife. Um, so there's stuff. But it's interesting because it switches the narrative between what a lot of people typically say here, which would be like June is Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some people switch it up. And in this case, like we're actually talking about Nick is like, I think in what you were saying was like, do not touch me. I'm not like ready yet. Right. He needs like a couple days to resurrect. But what I mean is, is that, you know, like people don't really know where Nick stands. I'm not part of this world and not part. He's, and then eventually he goes to no man's land. You know, so he's, he's in, in transition. He's in between exactly those in Gilead or is he a Gilead believer or not? Yeah. I think he's been walking between those worlds for some time though. Yeah. And I think that that was more of a, you know, out and out reference. Here we are. This is where we are. And I think it was a really nice play on words as well because it's kind of like, we're in no man's land and Fred knew straight away he was in trouble. He didn't belong there. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of yeah. like men are not meant to be here, you know. Yeah. But it's Nick's a brilliant like, play on words. Yeah. yeah, Nick's like, no, I'm all cool. I'm okay. My girlfriend, <laughs> my, <laughs> my girlfriend will look after me. It's She's fine. Got me. You know. <laughs> She's got me, you know. But it was a nice little play on words there. But um yeah, no, Fred immediately, he was terrified. Good. Yeah. Not soon enough. Not, yeah. <laughs> not till he saw June. That's what June wanted. I want him to be afraid. Okay, I think that is a wrap on our special episode with Jess Pensa. Thank you, Jessica, for coming on the show. And we will see you guys next week for The Shining Girls on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Back to Handmaid's Tale the following week. Thanks. Have a great weekend. You know, I think about us, the three of us, what we could be. I think about it all the time. Please, it's terrible. No, it's not. I know June, she's my friend. I care about her. How's your day going? You look pretty. Thanks. I wore it just for you. Her father's a driver named Nick. He helped me to survive. Yes, you can, because I can't lose you. I'm not gonna let anything happen to you. What about you? Your girlfriend is a badass.